Some couples would die if they didn't have each other. Others simply live much better because they're couples. Nature contains some really unusual couples. For example, a bird that frequently enters a crocodile's mouth. And that's one example of a fascinating biological phenomenon, symbiosis. A Nobel Prize winning scientist once said, science is an endless opening of sealed boxes, which turn out to have more sealed boxes inside. The more one learns, the more there is to learn. Let's open another box today on Truth in the Test Tube. Is life in the animal kingdom primarily a conflict, or is it cooperation? Professor William Traeger answers that conflict in nature between different kinds of organisms has been popularly expressed in phrases like struggle for existence and survival of the fittest. Yet few people realise that mutual cooperation between different kinds of organisms, symbiosis, is just as important and that the fittest may be the one that most helps another to survive. Isn't part of the word symbiosis the same bio that we have in biology? Yes, bio means life, and the word symbiosis begins with the same Greek prefix as symphony. The root words of symphony means sounding with. So symbiosis literally means living with. Yes, symbiotic organisms live together in a relationship that is beneficial to both. The Encyclopaedia Britannica defines symbiosis as a close, sustained living together of two species or kinds of organisms. The relationship between two species in which each benefits from the association. We said at the beginning of the broadcast, some couples would die without each other. Is that literally true? Yes, one example is a lichen, a fungus, living together with algae. Some lichens live on bare rocks, where they're exposed to extremely hot and extremely cold temperatures and to extremes of drought and moisture. Neither the fungus nor the algae could grow individually in these habitats, but in combinations they thrive there. Because algae are green plants, they can make vitamins and other nutrients by the process of photosynthesis. So the algae provides nutrients for the fungus. What does the fungus give in return? It provides shade to prevent the algae from drying out and dying of dehydration. What about the other opening statement? Which symbiotic organisms can live without each other but live better in each other's presence? One example partners the Nile crocodile and a species of plover bird sometimes called the crocodile bird. Very few animals ever enter a crocodile's mouth voluntarily. Yet the Nile crocodile allows this bird to enter and leave many times because the bird removes bothersome parasites from inside the river animal's mouth. The bird benefits from cooperating with the larger animal by eating the parasites as food. And a similar situation exists in the sea. Crustaceans and small fish eat debris and parasites from the bodies of larger fish. Professor Traeger says it's clear that the larger fish actively seek to be cleansed. In coral reefs, they're cleaning stations where host fishes congregate from large areas. How do host fishes sense which organisms they can safely allow to touch their bodies? The species of fishes that clean other fishes have specific colour patterns on their bodies. They seem also to swim in distinctive ways. 
Figuratively speaking, could we say that certain fish species have passwords? Their swimming patterns and their body colorations tell the host fish that they should be allowed near it. Yes, and an even more sophisticated situation exists with other symbiotic organisms. The sea anemone is an invertebrate related to the jellyfish and corals. It protects itself from enemies by stinging them to paralyse them and then kills them. The paralysing sting appears to occur automatically when another animal comes into contact with the sea anemone. But the fish Amphiprion eats parasites from the surface of the sea anemone's body. So how does this one species avoid being stung and eaten? By a combination of chemistry and elaborate motions, the fish approaches this sea anemone gradually, carefully avoiding a disc-shaped sensing organ of the anemone. Next, it passes about a centimetre from a sensitive disc, seemingly exposing the disc to a chemical that partially desensitises it. Additional complex movements follow until the larger organism becomes so tolerant that it allows its symbiotic partner to move freely up and down its body, eating parasites freely. Only a certain kind of desensitizing chemical and pattern of movements can get this unusual fish past the deadly defenses of the sea anemone. Isn't it interesting that one species of fish has the right chemistry and choreography? Yet the same chemical and the same movements have no effect on other genera of anemones. They sting and they eat Amphiprion. I've heard that some symbiotic organisms even live inside their partners. Is that true? Yes, the classic example of this involves a way to digest cellulose. Termites eat wood, but the cellulose in wood is so hard to digest that the termites can't digest it without help. And that help is in the form of bacteria, protozoa, and other microorganisms which live in the digestive system of the termite. One researcher exposed the termites to pressurised oxygen for several hours, and that killed the protozoa in their intestines, apparently without harming the insects. And the termites continued to eat their usual diet of wood and paper, yet they died within two to three weeks about the same length of time they would have survived if they were starving. Does that mean that when protozoa were no longer living inside the insects, the insects could not digest what they had eaten? Yes, they were full of food, but they died from not being able to metabolise it. Experimenters discovered that reinfecting some of the termites with protozoa from other termites restarted the digestive process and saved the insects' lives. Isn't the relationship between a honeybee and flowers a symbiosis? The bee gets a meal of nectar for helping the plants to reproduce another generation. Yes, there are many more examples of symbiosis among various species of plants and animals. But I think we've discussed enough to discover very intricate partnerships within nature, with each partner providing something that the other partner needs. Well, reviewing briefly, there's the lichen, a team composed of a fungus and an algae, capable of living together on bare rocks, on which each would die individually. There's the crocodile bird, which eats out of the crocodile's mouth, and the amphiprion fish, which evades a stinging mechanism to eat parasites from the body of a sea anemone. 
We also explored the termite and discovered it would starve to death with its stomach full if its digestive organs didn't contain just the right microorganisms to enable it to digest cellulose. Why do so many animals do the best thing as the natural thing? Why do they instinctively behave in such complex ways with such desirable results? As far as researchers can tell, animals don't understand what results they are achieving by their actions. They merely follow the instinctual impulse of the moment. Yet their instinctive actions produce desirable results. They obtain food, they escape predators, and they reproduce another generation of their species. Are those merely fortunate accidents? Science writer Nigel Corder observes many very functional operations in biology. He remarks that they appear as if by design. As if by design. Does that mean certain animal behaviours seem to be purposeful, but really aren't? Yes, many schools have popularised the idea that a scientist must reject a priori the idea that anything in nature has a purpose or a design. Isn't a priori a Latin expression used by philosophers, meaning reaching a conclusion before gathering evidence? Right. One definition is based on a hypothesis or theory rather than on experiment or experience, made before or without examination, not supported by factual study. So, if a scientist sees what appears to be evidence of purposeful design in nature, must he tell himself that the appearance is an illusion? One popular philosophy says yes. If his intelligence tells him he sees creative design in nature, he's been told to distrust his intellect and substitute a hypothetical explanation a professor told him. Making an a priori guess may be all we can do before there isn't any evidence. But when observational evidence becomes plentiful, why should the original hypothesis override the scientific observation? That's an excellent question. If our study of nature and its complexities leads logically to the conclusion that some kind of intelligence has made nature, why must we distrust our intelligence? Think about this possibility. Maybe an intelligent god made the complex symbiotic organisms we've been discussing today. And then maybe God gave us humans the intelligence to recognise purposeful design when we see it. One final question. Could God also be implying that he wants to have a symbiotic relationship with us? Is it possible that our lives would be more fulfilled by living with God than by living without him? You've been listening to Truth in the Test Tube, exploring what we discover in nature and what God has revealed in the Bible. You may email us at truthtest at truthinthetesttube.org. That's truthtest at truthinthetesttube.org. If you live in India, our email address is testtube at radio882.com. That's testtube at radio882.com. Either way, we'll be happy to hear from you. Please join us again for Truth in the Test Tube.